Hello everyone, once again this is your podcast producer Richard Ayliffe. This is the second episode of the Map of the Maze podcast since our break in production during the Covid crisis. Just briefly, I feel it is worth mentioning this recording was made in 2019 before the full implications of the crisis were realised and therefore makes no mention of it. Rest assured, the content will still be highly valuable and relevant as you'd come to expect from our podcast. I know several of our members have implemented Neil's approach to pricing in their own businesses to great effect. If you are interested in more COVID-specific content, you can listen to the previous episode featuring Turnaround Specialist and PE Chair Bob Ellis, or get in touch with us directly via info at pep-talks.co.uk to learn about our upcoming digital events. Now over to our host, Sam Smith, and special guest, Neil Thackray. So delighted to have uh, one of our founding members join us for this next episode of Map of the Maze. Neil Thackeray. Just by way of uh, introduction, Neil Neil started life really in publishing, working for Reed and Miller Freeman and then on to UBM um, before finding himself in his first private equity-backed CEO role with Quantum Business Media, wasn't it? Uh, which, yeah. is, which is Avian Amro, which is now AAC Capital, Correct. which I'm not even sure if they still exist today because they went into runoff, didn't they? Uh, they did. I think they still have a couple of assets, but I think they're largely largely gone. They're not. They're not. They're not raising any money. Yeah, and, and they they put you in there as a bit of a turnaround, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. So this was if you remember back in uh, the early 2000s, the media industry was quite challenged, and there was a fair degree of. <clears throat> Uh, difficulty and they had seen a downturn in in their markets and a business which had been expecting to grow very rapidly had actually declined in a uh, in an advertising recession and that caused quite a lot of problems not only did it put some pressure on the cash flow in the business which was extremely tight uh, but we were also in breach of all of our bank covenants so you know in those days in private equity you know that you had ever tightening bank covenants so you were expected to do ever better in each quarter against a tightening uh, against a tightening threshold uh, and we were very heavily geared as well so you know the debt ratio was pretty ghastly so it's a um, baptism of fire into private equity for yeah it was it was <laughs> yeah it was yeah it was it was interesting i mean at, at its heart you know there was a you know there was a really good business you know, in, inside it but it had just kind of lost lost its way a bit and i think it's inevitably quite difficult when you suddenly find you've been through a period of growth and they'd bought some things as well from uh, from EMAP McLaren uh, and had struggled a bit with the integration. And then the recession had hit and it was just difficult for them to kind of move fast enough. And actually a fresh pair of eyes on it turned out to be quite helpful because I had no emotional investment in it at that point, just some money investment. So it was possible to do some of the difficult things which... I think you know the management team were finding hard, you know, bluntly downsizing, you know, mm-hmm. and taking a big chunk of cost out in order to save the business and put some operational improvements in, just to get us back to stability so that we could start to invest in growth again. Uh, and you did, and you got it away, didn't you, with um, quite yeah. a complicated exit and yeah, so chopping uh, it up and selling it off. And as ever, I think we'll kind of come back to this about how you time you know exits. We got it back from kind of losing money to making. Uh, around about a ten percent margin, which is not you know, not fabulous, but uh, in those days, even in those days, it was pretty clear that if we sold the business as a single trading entity, you know, that we would do well to get a double-digit multiple. Uh, and at that level, that wasn't going to deliver a return 
for the private equity investor because we really had only got back to the level at which they bought the business at. Um, So what we worked out quite quickly was that the best thing to do was to articulate each of the assets which were in different market sectors to buyers who had a different motivation to get the deal done. Uh, And one asset in particular was worth considerably more than all of the others, so we focused on that first uh, on getting that deal done and we sold that business strangely to UBM, my alma mater, uh, for, a, for a very good sum and that took the pressure off a bit so we didn't have quite as much pressure on the value of the other assets. We then did five more deals over time. Uh, that was your first experience and quite a baptism of fire as I say. Yeah. But actually for the purposes of this conversation we're probably going to concentrate on um, the experience that came next uh, which was uh, really a fascinating story because um, you sort of set yourself up in business. Well, first of all, you went out to explore the market to try and find a transaction. Yeah. That took some more time than, than anyone expects it to. So you set yourself up in business and doing some cold consulting. And then rather sort of the effort that you put into treading the boards paid back, didn't it? Because uh, an opportunity came for you to buy a business and that sort of led, yeah. led you into briefing yeah. media correct so I spent some time when I, I was not working I left my previous business so I, I was doing as you say consulting work which is as people who work in the media industry know is code for not being able to get a proper job <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was doing a bit of that but also in, in between I just toured around all the mid-market private equity companies that I knew and some that I didn't I uh, was very lucky to get some help from one of the grown-up corporate advisories who offered to help me effectively pro bono, which which you know, helped get in the door of some of these places. Um, I wrote a, a, a presentation, really, which was uh, a, dem- a hypothetical demonstration of how media assets could deliver a return for private equity without having a particular asset in mind. I had a different view about how that happened uh, and how you extracted value. Uh, and at the time, everybody was talking about digital transformation or you know, digital transition. And, and I just wanted to reset and say, that's really not what it's about. And actually, if you're buying what we now call legacy assets, you can do something really interesting with them if you assume that you're not buying the platform, but you're buying an engagement with an audience which you can monetize in multiple ways. That was the shorthand of what we were talking about. So I spent a long time doing that without anything particular to talk to them about. And then you know, along the way, uh, we started briefing media. I met Rory Brown, who was my partner in that, and who's now still the CEO of the business. Uh, and he and I shared many of the same views about what needed to be done. And so we said, well, let's just do one. You know, Let's just start one, mm. uh, because that kind of keeps us active. So we, we launched that business in 2010, uh, and it was doing all right, you know, and we built a kind of a, quite a nice... Uh, online community and a nice events business off the back of it but it wasn't paying us and we were still hemorrhaging cash our own private cash uh, at this point because we bootstrapped it uh, and then along the way I'd had a very long uh, off and on conversation with again UBM who haunted me throughout my career it seems and they phoned me and said did I want to buy some assets which they had decided to sell and um, to which my answer was yes uh, depending on what they were we had a quick look, uh, and I thought, yeah, that looks like it works. It was in two market sectors, which I thought were reasonably attractive. So I made them an offer. <clears throat> uh, and to my amazement, they came back and said, your offer has been accepted. We'll give you a period of exclusivity. Uh, at which point, slight panic sets in mm. because I realised I don't have the money. 
Mm. And we were talking about, in today's terms, not a lot of money, but it was £10 million, which was... Let me see if I can remember how much more money That's it was. That's still a lot of money in today's terms. Yeah, well, I had, I, I had about, about 10,000 of it, I think, at the time. So, you know, I was, I was a bit shy of being able to write the cheque. So uh, that's actually when all that work that I'd done before, treading the boards, as you put it, uh, with mid-market private equity companies paid off. Because I was then able to go back to them and say, remember what I told you? Yeah. Here are some assets where we can actually play that game. Yeah. Uh, and you know, because we're not buying overly expensively, you know, I'm very confident we can make that work. Consequence of which was we got quite a lot of interest, and I was able to stand up my offer reasonably quickly with the vendor, and you know, and keep the process mm. moving along to the. And point you got the deal. You got, we it. got the deal. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's two things that really exercise private equity at the point where they're making a bid. One is sure, yeah, the quality of the asset, but they're going to diligence it to death. So you know, if the asset's terrible, they're not going to do not going to get away with it. You're not going to get away with it. But as importantly, or more importantly, is the quality of the people that are sitting in front of them who are going to run the asset. If you end up changing horses, you know, getting rid of the management team mid-term with private equity, that inevitably delays the exit, and it often causes a car crash and a catastrophe. There are lots of case studies of that. So making sure that they trust you and uh, you know you're somebody with whom they can work is 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 really powerful so that work that we had done both in treading the boards with private equity generally and also remaining visible with the launch of the business that we bootstrapped was actually quite helpful because when they diligenced us and talked to other people in the media industry they go yeah these guys know what they're doing they're pretty smart you know they're reliable and they're sensible mm -hmm. Just be just. I don't mean to fast forward yeah. too much, but I really want to get on to some of the sort of critical elements of what you did with what is today now Agri Briefing rather yeah. than Briefing Media, because it's a great story of and transforming a business from what was quite a small media business into something that now is a global yeah. end to end services services uh, the agricultural in industry end to end from farmer to commodities trader, doesn't it? Yeah, um, correct. So it's it's a great story, but. What happened in that first chapter is that it went quite well, didn't it? Um, you sorted the business out, and effectively, you came to a point where you thought, actually, we need. You, you were telling me in preparation for this, we need a new owner. Not, yeah. not, not in to in any disrespect to Kester, they'd done a great job, but actually, you knew you had to go and buy some stuff, and the, yeah, so the strategy a, was changing. There's a limit. So, I mean, I mean, at the heart of it, you have to ask yourself, what, what's the business that you're in, you know, and some people in my world say they're in the publishing business or they're in the media business or in the information business. Uh, um, we never really saw it like that. We said, actually, what we're in the business of doing is helping people in the world of agriculture in, in, in our circumstance make better decisions. And then we need to monetize that relationship as we, as we help them do that. We don't really mind how that gets done. And the original business that we bought was focused on one part of the agricultural value chain. I think when we bought the business, typically people were paying £65 for access to our service, and we took them up to about 170 So we materially improved the profit of the business. But it was still a UK-focused, single part of the value chain business. And what we could see was that there were significant opportunities elsewhere in the world of agriculture in other parts of the value chain, which were much more enterprise-driven, where the buckets of money that were available to somebody doing the sorts of things that we thought we could do were achievable. And we got there because during the time with Kester, we bought a small business called AgriMoney, uh, which was a new service for the world of uh, agricultural commodities. 
which wasn't really monetized at the time, but it gave us access to some of that enterprise audience. Uh, and we started to learn a bit about how to engage with them and how to create stickiness with them. But we also knew that in the world of private equity, you haven't got very long. So we realized we were gonna to have to buy our way into that space. Uh, and so we had the conversation with Kester about three years in, this is the moment to sell. We've had three great years. Mm. And they were a bit shocked, I think. You know, well, you know, why do you want to do this now? You know, the business is still growing. You know, why, you know we're still more to take out of it. Uh, and we talked about this, and you know, there were a number of reasons. One is, you know, well, hey, look, we've had three good years. You might have a bad one. And if you have a bad one, you're then three years away from doing a deal, which means you're six or seven years mm. in, which doesn't look great because it destroys the IIR. Uh, uh, and secondly, and more importantly, if we're going to do you know, this bigger plan and really build our membership base, our paid membership base, that's probably going to require uh, more firepower than was available to us from uh, a fund size uh, that we were in. So at that point, we agreed to um, uh, uh, start a process and, and, and pursue a uh, and pursue a secondary. Mm -hmm. So many of the guests around the table this evening and our listeners to the podcast will be in a primary deal and be wanting to go again, um, go through a secondary transaction. So uh, what advice would you give to those people in just beginning to think about it and approaching it in the right way? Well, I mean, the truth mechanic is that the decision is your investor on the assumption that they've got a majority position in your business. But the reality is it's management. I mean, it's very difficult for an investor to make a management team exit when they don't want to. Because the management team are a really important part of the IP and the value and the value in the business. At the same time, if the management team really want to do it, you've got to have a very good reason to to stop them. But a lot of that is built on trust, isn't it? You know, so it's about the quality of the relationship that you have with the investor. Um, and I think one of the things that some people I've spoken to have struggled with in their first private equity job is understanding the difference between having a corporate boss. Uh, you know, who is the proxy for a shareholder who may be some distance away from you uh, and having a live shareholder in your business mm. because they're not your boss in the same way. You actually have an alignment of interests about what you want the outcome to be uh, and you have to have a very transparent conversation about that and really understand what drives them as well. You know, how old is the fund? When are they going to need to liquidate that fund? What access to other funds do they have? Mm. What's their internal target for a return on this business you know what other deals have they done what is the fund looking like right now mm. are they under pressure to get something done or are they kind of relaxed about it it's all kind of, so you need to understand all of that and have a really good deep relationship with your investing partner and his or her colleagues on the investment committee uh, to be able to have a grown-up conversation about doing the right thing for all of you mm. uh, so you don't end up with either party throwing their toys out of the pram and saying you know what are you trying to do why are you trying to make me sell this business when I don't want to or, yeah. or, or whatever it might be um, and that's built on built on trust and, and we we definitely had that with the um, uh, with the team at Kester and that's that's how we were but able I think to the other thing them. the other point from from that just beginning the process of exiting um, that first time round is that you you sort of led the charge. You didn't wait for them to say, "Okay, time's up." You actually no. you you picked your own timing. Really, yeah. you yeah, that, well, and, that, and, and a bit ahead as well. I mean, I think you know, rule of thumb, you know, from the day you first have that conversation to sitting in a lawyer's office at the other end of the transaction is probably twelve months. 
Yeah. You know, I mean, you might get it done faster, but if you're going to, you know, be properly prepared, you know, make sure the business is diligence ready uh, and is ready for the kind of the next stage. You've yeah. got all your narrative sorted out. You've got your strategy story agreed. You know why you're doing what you're doing. You know what you're going to tell the next investor. All that stuff. Um, you know, you need to need to get in place, and that does take that takes some time. Yeah. So when you started going out onto the market, doing your presentations, fireside yeah. chats. What were you looking for? I, I remember you also saying to me in the past you had a sort of little crib sheet, didn't yeah. you, in terms of right, this is this is what we're after in the management team. Yeah, so that's um, that is challenging. Actually, all private equity companies ask you that as well. What are you looking for? You know, I mean, they've all got money, money, haven't they? There's nothing really. There's no shortage of money. Yeah. I mean, there's so much as to, you know, dry powder around. Uh, there is there is plenty of money. Um, so it really helps if they have done a deal like this before. So if they understand something about your sector and the business, that's really helpful. Um, because otherwise, you know, they might get alarmed by things that they shouldn't get alarmed by or whatever. So that's that's one criteria. The second, which gets harder as you get bigger, is that you want to feel that the partner that you're talking to has the confidence to allow you access to other partners on the investment committee. And, and the reason that matters is because if you don't do that, the story that you tell the investing partner is then communicated by him or her mm. to his or her colleagues on the investment committee, almost inevitably not as well as you would do it yourself and without the sizzle and without the... Mm. Did it, you find that was the case with some people you were working so, with? Some it was fine. Uh, and some it wasn't. So some of the much larger firms, it's just not possible, frankly, because you're talking yeah. to the guy, talks to the guy, talks to the guy, talks to the guy. Um, and certainly if you go up the food chain into the larger cap companies, you're not going to be able to do that, I would accept. Mm. But in the small mid-market uh, area, which is really where we were, it's absolutely doable. Uh, and you know, you want to know that actually everybody on the IC is on side. And the reason that matters is because you can end up in a position where you're 90% done and at the clearance meeting at the IC, three weeks before you think you're going to close, mm. somebody, the managing partner who hasn't really been paying attention, suddenly goes, yeah, I don't like this. Yeah. yeah, I've never liked this kind of business. I think it's a bit risky. Or I'm a bit worried about Brexit or whatever it, whatever it might be. Mm. And suddenly it's gone. You know, and because there's no backstory that they can lean on, and there's no mm. trust. Says, you know what? We'll back these guys because you know they're great. They know what they're doing, and I know they'll 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 push it through. Um, so that was definitely one of the criteria. Um, the third was around age of fund. So, what you don't want to be is in the tail end of an old fund, because um, you are likely to find yourself under pressure to do something that might not fit the timing of the development of your business because mm. they want to liquidate the fund or you know other assets are you know exiting ahead of you and you're the last one or two and mm. suddenly you become you know you become you become the problem um, so you know, it's always good to ask uh, you know, what are, who else is in my fund? How are they doing? Yeah. You know, what's going on? Am how I, how I, much have you deployed? How much have you deployed? You know, what's left? Well, you know, what access do I have to, you mm. know, to other funds? How am I going to be protected in that in terms of dilution if we're going to buy stuff? So all that thing around management terms is yeah. important. Um, but the real killer, I think, is just the is that is that sense of trust. You know, whoever you're going to, whoever your investing partner is, is somebody who's going to sit on your board for the next three, four, five years. You're going to work with quite closely. Things are going to go wrong. There are going to be times when it is difficult and tense, and you need to have 
a working relationship which is as strong with the investing partner as it is with your internal business partners. Rory and I, over what, nearly 10 years we've worked together, we have definitely disagreed with each other from time to time. Mm. Uh, and occasionally we've had pretty robust conversations with one another. But we've never fallen out because there's a huge mutual regard uh, about what we bring to the party. And it's a good way of thrashing out a good kind of creative difference to a mm -hmm. sensible conclusion. And you have to be able to do the same thing uh, with your investing partner. So, you know, one of the nightmares can be you do the deal and then they suddenly go, right, I'd now like to introduce you to your chairman who you've never met before because he's one of our mates and he's done lots of kind of good things before. Oh, and here's our, you know, operating partner, you know, who thinks he knows how to run your business and he's yeah. going to sit on the board as well. And, you know, and suddenly gonna, you're not gonna, really dealing with this person, you're dealing with some yeah, other idiots. We're going to put are, a team of people in to work around you. Yeah, can we put a team of people in, you know, to uh, help you with your pick anything you like, you know, your digital marketing or yeah. whatever, and you, know, and you just feel your face hitting the desk, and, you know, <laughs> uh, or whatever. So, so diligencing them in how they operate and talking to other CEOs and chairs who have worked with them, yeah. who are both in the fund now and have exited with them. Uh, and I always ask them, can you give me somebody who you didn't make money with? Because mm. the guys you did make money with well, we all love each other, right? So, mm. you, know, you know, I'm sure if you know some people phone me up occasionally about Kester, I love them. You know, we all made money together. I'm sure if you phone them up about me, oh, yeah, Neil's great because we all made money together. So, mm. that's I could be the biggest idiot ever, but we all made money, <laughs> and uh, therefore it's good. Yeah. So you steer through a secondary buyout. You went with Lyceum Capital, who are yeah. now Horizon. Didn't yeah. You? The plan was very, very different this time round. This was a completely different strategy. That was a buy and build which was going to be an international play. It wasn't going to be a UK yeah. business. And it was difficult in that no one had really, of your size, had done anything like this before. So, you know, building something that was end-to-end -end yeah. was a great idea, but quite difficult to execute. So um, I suppose the first question is, when, you, when, you, when you're on a buy and build, is the, does the pressure come to bear to actually go and make acquisitions? I mean, if you're not making an acquisition in your first sort of six, 12 months, I mean, what... It took you a while, didn't it? It took, yeah, it took it, about 18 months. Is, I mean, that's one of the problems, isn't it? Having a, a strategy and a growth strategy that is dependent on acquisitions. Yeah. You can't guarantee you can get a deal done. You know, even if you're a bit pregnant with something where you're you know, having a conversation, there's absolutely no guarantee that it will, uh, uh, that it will happen. So that, so that is a difficulty. So you have to have a, have a parallel strategy. So in the meantime, we're going to continue to push our organic growth. And uh, clearly we can accelerate if we can buy something, but let's make sure we don't buy the wrong thing. Mm. So we did spend a lot of time post-deal thinking about what the criteria for buying stuff was. Uh, and because there are all kinds of categories of things we could have bought. We could have bought software companies. We could have bought other media companies that looked a bit like us. We could have bought um, you know, data businesses or you know, subscription information businesses or, or whatever. So there was a, there was a loss of choice. And I think we came up with a list of about 500 targets, wow. um, uh, which took a bit of doing. But that and the work we did on that enabled us to focus around what we really wanted so that we didn't waste our time pursuing stuff that was pointless. Mm. And, and, and as you know, and I'm sure as everybody at this dinner knows, in the weeks after you do a deal, your phone rings all the time from brokers who say, oh, hey, you've done a deal, you must have some money, I've got this to sell you. Uh, and you just have to be really careful you don't waste your time you know, pursuing things that don't make any sense. Mm. The, the second issue is that if you're doing buy and build, you have to be very careful about what you pay. Uh, 
because uh, part of the way in which you get uh, a decent money multiple for private equity is certainly out of EBITDA growth and, and changing the quality of earnings and all that good stuff. Um, but you, 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 you're not going to be able to do that uh, on your own without uh, being able to get some multiple arbitrage as well, which means you have to be buying cheaper than you're going to sell. And if you're buying information businesses, that's pretty hard. If you go and talk to any media company or you go and talk to any private in, uh, equity investor in this space and you say, what are you looking to buy? Well, we'd like to buy international subscription membership businesses with high levels of recurring revenue and you know, fabulous growth. And in that world, you know, you're talking about paying a lot of money. Mm. So we couldn't wait for auctions to happen. We had to go out and yeah, that's fine stuff. That's why it took a while, wasn't it? You had to go and yeah. you you really sort of self-sourced, didn't you? you we certainly did for the for the second one. The first one actually was an auction. Um, uh, was, uh, was was, let's bit, talk about uh, it. It was the French business. It was the French business, business in France, privately owned uh, by the guy who founded it. And uh, he'd taken him 15 years and he built a nice, profitable business. Uh, but what he knew about was the area of market competence that he operated in. He really didn't know very much about running a business or running an information business. Uh, and I think he was tired and he, and he wanted a way out. Uh, and uh, the, the broker approached me and I didn't even understand what the business did to be honest, I'd never heard of it. And, um, but he had me when he mentioned agriculture, so that was fine. And then I realized that you know, this was one of those businesses and there was a danger I was gonna overpay. So I said to him, I said, look, I will bid, but there's a condition and the condition is I get to spend an afternoon with the owner before I bid, which is unusual because you don't normally get you know that mm. kind of access. Um, and because we look like we should be a buyer, we, we agreed that and um, and that enabled us to build a relationship with the vendor directly rather than through the broker. Uh, and there were two things that he was worried about, which was one was, um, you know, I wanna make sure I sell this to the right people you know, who are not gonna you know, mess me about. Um, uh, and secondly, I don't want this process to be horrible because he really didn't, you know, he just hated the whole idea of the whole kind of due diligence piece. So, you know, we gave him two assurances. One was that post deal, he could do whatever he wanted, um, you know, as much or as little as he wanted in the business. Secondly, that we would do whatever we could to make it easy for him and it wouldn't be like doing it with a corporate who would make it difficult for him. Uh, uh, and thirdly, we would instantly make the things that were painful for him go away, which was principally he didn't want to talk to the staff. <laughs> we could kind of fix all of that. Uh, so we built some trust with him, and uh, and I am very confident that we were a significant underbidder. You know, he didn't take as much money as he could have done, but he got the result that he needed. Mm. Uh, and then we were able to get hold of this business, and we could immediately see that it had huge opportunity both to increase price and to increase volume and to increase the scope of coverage. So it was a, it was definitely a, definitely a, uh, a worthwhile. So thing when, when um, you you went through a big transition from you, you did do an acquisition with Kester, but mm. sort of fairly small scale. But now you're buying. Well, we did two actually. We bought a trade show as well. Sorry, you yeah. did <laughs> two. But now now you're buying international businesses. Yeah. Know, one in France, and one in the States. Yeah. And you're inheriting and integrating their people. How how do you um, just reset the culture and to make sure that 
everybody is now on the same page and agri briefing briefing yeah. is you know one collective one group all firing on the same cylinders yeah uh, it's really i know you have a process for this is why i asked it's really it's really difficult and if I, the uh, Lyceum, as they were, were were very worried about that. You know, how does this become one kind of integrated business? And and because it doesn't overnight, and, it, and yeah. it's certainly not a question of changing the sign on the door. If actually that's the last thing to do, because that's the sort of thing that makes it feel like they're being taken over rather than being absorbed. So um, you know, so it has to feel um, you know a bit like being um, assimilated by the Borg. I suppose you don't really notice that it's happened, but you suddenly find you're part of the collective. Mm -hmm. uh, if I, if I can use that analogy, so. Um, in fact, the, the people we bought the business in the US from were so neurotic about it that you know they didn't even want us to tell their customers that we bought it, or, you know, even after post-completion. So we did it very slowly. The history of all these businesses was that they had been successful but had been very low growth. And of course, in a private equity world, it can't be like that. You have to be successful and high growth. Uh, and that involved doing some things operationally differently. Uh, so one of the things we've done with all, all of the businesses that, that we have bought is take the whole team uh, away or, or, or into a big room and just talk to them about what it is that really drives profit and why driving profit is not something that is scary. So one of the things we talk to people about is that there are only three kinds of companies. There are companies that grow fast, there are companies which are equilibrium and there are companies that are going backwards and there are no equilibrium companies. And you certainly don't want to be the one that's going backwards. So let's work out what we have to do to be the third. And let's also look at really how easy that is to do. Mm -hmm. So we then take them through a program of doing some work where you know, we pull all the various levers that are available to you in growing profit uh, and get them doing some work on the differences well, that they but can you, make. You, but what, what are those levers? You, you talk about those quite well, you know, adequately. Did you go to business school? I didn't, unfortunately. You didn't. Okay. No. So I thought about it once and you know, you look at, you know, I think going to Harvard is going to cost you the best part of $100,000 yeah. or something. You know, so you know, it's, it's not, a cheap, not a cheap thing to do and time out of your career and I can save you all of that money. <laughs> Just don't bother in the next five minutes in yeah. the next two minutes in two <laughs> so, so the brutal truth is there are only ever three things you can do to make more margin um, you can do what most people do when they're under pressure which is take cost out mm. and if you look at my industry the media industry it spent 15 years taking cost out you know, somehow making the product a bit crapper yeah. in the expectation that revenue is publishing and hard copy yeah, and whatever. whatever. It's, it's catastrophically bad, but you know, but it's un understandable. So you can do that, and that pushes your margin out. You can sell more stuff, which is mostly you know taking your salespeople in a room and you know assuming that they're all you know bone idle and lazy, beating them with a stick until more money comes out. You know, change their incentive plan. Tell them if they don't make you know four thousand calls every hour, you're going to fire them. You know, or whatever, or create some ridiculous you know metric that you think in some way is going to improve performance and you might sell a bit more maybe I don't know whatever and that will help selling more stuff that will certainly improve your profit and the third is managing price uh, and managing price for value uh, and most organizations when they're under pressure to improve margin and profits start with a focus on costs uh, which is actually the least efficient way of improving your margin strangely mm. then they start worrying about how do we sell more stuff you know we've got all this product in the proverbial warehouse, how do we get more of it out of the door? And only latterly, if at all, do they do anything about price. And in fact, often they do the reverse on price. As they're trying to shift more volume, they let the price collapse and actually they destroy any margin that they might have. So did you, do you really introduce the idea of strategic price planning or? Correct. So There's an art to it. Every business I've ever worked in or ever done consultancy in 
pretty much without exception, has an insane price strategy. Yeah. Almost without exception. Not, not many would say we have a nailed down yeah. pricing strategy. Or even thought about it. There's always three of everything, isn't it? There's only three ways to set a price. You could do the manufacturing way, which is typically cost plus. I want to make a margin of 10%. It costs me this much to make the thing. If I charge 10% more than what it costs me to make the thing, you mm-hmm. know, as a 10% gross margin, we're all kind of cooking. And because my overhead is less than 10%, and normally it's an eight, then I make a net margin of two, and everything's fine. Retail's the same. So that's one way of doing it. Not terribly sensible uh, in, in some ways. Uh, there's the media industry way of doing it, which is make it up. You know, I'll see what I can get away with. Uh, um, the events industry is really bad at this. It is making up prices, you know. Sponsorship costs always a number ending in four zeros, you know, so you've obviously made it up. Uh, and uh, the third way of setting a price is value-based pricing. And that's about understanding what the nature of the risk is in the relationship between you and the customer. Uh, and if you don't know how to manage that risk or understand it, you won't maximise the price. I think the example I gave you the other day was you know, if you're flying a plane to New York, do you want the cheapest pilot or do you want the one with 30 years experience who's earning 150 grand a year? Well, mm. you, know, you know, you kind of know. So there's some things where the risk makes a difference to your comfort about, about price. And understanding how that works is, is, really, is really quite important. But also there are about 50 or 60 strategies that you can use, which are all micro strategies, all of which will make a difference to every individual transaction that you do in an organisation. Uh, and we can't talk about them all now, but we start getting people to think about what those are, and they go and find them out for themselves, and, and then they start applying it to the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do all sorts of stuff. They come back with crazy ideas, which you won't let them do, uh, and some really good ones which you do let them do, some of which work, some of which don't. But the impact on the business is dramatic, and they they change their sense of um, why you need to make more money, and that they can do something about it. My experience is that they get much more ambitious about it than I am, mm. particularly on price. Once they've understood it, and they start to get confident, um, you know, they can really you know move it along very quickly. How how do you s- stress test that with your customer? I mean, how do you yeah, so you can categorise the customers by kind of the degree of risk and the degree of engagement with you. So um, uh, there were a reasonably large number of relatively small customers who were underpaying. And so look, if we push their price by 20%, you know, 85% of those people will just pay. I mean, you, I mean they'll, just, they'll just write the cheque mm. and there won't be an issue. A small number of them will push back and we'll have a strategy for how we deal with that. So that's going to be pretty easy. And there's a relatively small number of larger customers for whom that's going to be you know, a more difficult conversation. And we're going to have to have an individual strategy for each of those customers about what it is that motivates them to, to engage with us. Anyway, so um, in every business, we've been able to kind of make, make that difference. And what it's done is it's enthused people. It stopped them worrying about, oh, my God, we're owned by some private equity vulture who's going to asset strip and take all the money away, which they don't do. You know. mm-hmm. US is a bit different, but here that, that doesn't happen. Um, and, and they very quickly get a result and their confidence level goes up, uh, and then that starts to feed back into product development, and all kinds of you know magical things start to happen. Yeah, and it takes time, but uh, but it's absolutely worth uh, yeah. the, developing the culture in a twenty yeah. percent year on year growth business is a hell of a lot easier than developing culture in a business that's you know, yeah, and it's really backwards. tempting. You know, when people talk about culture, and you know, cu- culture is what you do; it's not you know what you 
you yeah. can't make it happen. And lots of organisations, when they're talking about culture, they'll get you know, some consultants in to help them do it, and they'll come up with a vision statement or a set of goals, or you know, mm. talk about how we all hug a tree nicely together or something. And it is the most ridiculous tosh <laughs> because it doesn't mean you know, it's treated with a high degree of cynicism by you know, your colleagues. Uh, it actually doesn't change anything at all in the in 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 the business, uh, and it's a total waste of time and money. In my humble view, apologies to all um, um, uh, culture, culture strategy consultants, <laughs> of which there are of which there are many. What actually makes a difference is giving people the power to make a difference, and that means not doing the big things, but actually doing hundreds of small things, which make a which make a big difference. Mm. That's been great, Neil. Thanks very much. Thank you. It's always fun to fun to talk about. I think it's time to have a glass of wine or a beer. That sounds like a very good plan. Okay. Always up for that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Private Equity Power Talks, Map of the Maze. Please subscribe for a new episode each month and share with anyone in your network you think may be interested. If you have any questions for us about Pep Talks membership or anything else, please email us at info at pep-talks.co.uk. And thank you for listening.